and welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Vents, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas and start much needed conversations. I'm your host, as always, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have Anata and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. I've spoken to two men so far on the Just Checking In podcast about gambling addiction, Tom Fleming and Joshua's opinion, a white man and a black man respectively. In this episode, I'm checking in with a recovering female gambling addict called Claire Donegan. Now, you might think that because of the way that football and betting is so intertwined and that football is stereotypically enjoyed by a majority male audience, that all gambling addicts or problem gamblers might be men. That is a misconception I hope we can break down in this episode with Claire. So since Claire began her recovery journey from gambling addiction, she is now a gambling addiction recovery coach, which she uses to help those who are currently experiencing problem gambling and also those who are now in recovery. Claire's mission is to help others who are faced with this addiction to reach a healthy and sustainable life in recovery. In this episode, we talk about how Claire became addicted to gambling and how it surrounded her during her early life and childhood, how it consumed her life and how she struggled to balance the addiction with being a young mother of two children. We also talk about the stigma of being a female gambling addict in itself and the differences women feel compared to men, how and why she managed to turn her life around and the positive impact she has on people through her addiction recovery coaching. So this is how my conversation with Claire Donegan went. Claire Donegan, welcome to the Just Checking Pod. Thank you so much for letting me check in with you. It took us a while to get here and get this, this pod on the road, but we are finally here. How are you? How are you getting on? How's your Sunday? It's good. It's really good, actually. Yeah, so I'm feeling good today. Amazing. I was really keen to get a range of experiences when it comes to gambling addiction. So especially with your experience, Claire, I'm really hopeful that the listeners will will learn a lot from this and take a lot from, I think, one of the most underreported stories when it comes to mental health. So thank you for telling me your story and what we'll get into. If you're ready, shall we crack on with the show? Yeah, let's go. Let's talk about your journey to start the pod, Claire. It's everything you do through the coaching you do stems from this. So I ask all my special guests this question first. Walk me through your early life in Ireland, teenage years, maybe family. And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Claire we meet here? Yeah, well, I had a fantastic childhood, to be honest, Freddie. I grew up in a bungalow in the countryside beside my grandparents, and it was really lovely. My brothers and my sister were a good bit older than me. So I used to love when a Sunday would come round and all my relatives would come visit my granny because she lived next door. And then I'd have someone to play with. So it was great. And there was this farm across the road and it had a stream and it had apple trees. And, you know, it sounds idyllic, but it really was. I was really lucky to have that. Yeah, then when I was 13, I started working part-time and I just started secondary school at that point. So I found myself spending a lot of time with the older children, I suppose, just through work and everything. And I started going out to pubs when I was 15 and I never got ID'd because I always looked older and I was always with an older crowd. 
but you know I loved it and I got on with everyone and I felt happy I felt happy growing up with those older people Claire do you think that was a a positive influence on you or was it a negative influence (laughs) I think that it probably made me think I was older than I was and maybe more mature than I was and probably didn't help my development in the long run You were also surrounded by gambling at quite an early age. So can you tell me how your interest in it specifically began? And a story that we talked about off air, which was when you were 21, I think, the night before you travelled to Australia that seemed to, I guess, maybe create this spark. So can you tell the listeners about that as well? Yeah, well, one thing I'll say that I've always carried from childhood is a very competitive streak. So... When I was growing up, I loved board games and card games and even PE in school. And I remember just this desire to win. And my best friend growing up was completely the opposite. She had no time for games and her attention span was shocking. So she thought I was crazy because I'd never give up on stuff. But like gambling, it's so prominent in Ireland. And it always seemed like something that was just a normal, fun activity. I remember when I was younger, all my aunts and uncles would have a card game in my granny's house every Sunday night. And it was always five card draw and they'd play for like 20p per stake. But I found it fascinating. It's just something I remember so clearly. But in saying that, gambling didn't consume my thoughts or anything. Like there was always horse racing on the TV when I was growing up and I never took any notice of it. It was just boring to me. But then fast forward to 21 and I have this vivid memory of sitting in my local bar the night before I flew to Australia and for some reason I decided to bet on a horse called Emma's Legend because it had the same name as my niece and everyone was there you know shouting at their horses on the telly so I thought why not and then it won at 8 to 1 (laughs) And I remember feeling just elated that I was getting £45 back for my £5 bet. It felt so simple. And I walked out there delighted with myself that I had this extra bit of cash for my trip. So then I arrived in Australia two days later and I was met by my brother and his family. And it was really lovely. I was just there for a month visiting and... They were so good and they brought me to so many beautiful places and I had a lovely time. But the high that I felt from the wind before I left just stayed with me. I found myself thinking about it and thinking how easy it was. I think the best way to describe it, it's like a hunger that just kept growing and I knew that I had to feed it somehow. I remember going to a bingo hall while I was there and trying to satisfy that but like it didn't work and my hunger just it was definitely growing even at that point. I want to talk about your university years now and how they transpired afterwards so you came back to Ireland and started your degree was this the point would you say when the gambling turned from a hobby or something quite fun and something that causes elation into something more serious and an addiction? Honestly, it didn't take long at all to turn into an addiction. 
when I got back, I remember opening an online account and then about two months later, I started back in college and instead of parking up at the college, I was parking outside Bucky's. And at first I was able to go in and have one or two bets and walk out, but that really didn't last long. I found myself winning a lot and, you know, big odds. And I really felt like this is so easy. I thought I'd become an expert in a very short period of time. And at this point, I was definitely hooked. But um, like anything, my luck just didn't last. And I remember very clearly walking in one day after being paid and walking out with nothing. It was a very surreal feeling because I had no idea what to do. And it felt like that was the day that this new voice manifested in my head. And it could, you know, think of scenarios that seem crazy, but yet it could convince my brain that they were completely reasonable and rational. I'd say like, this is when the cycle of losing money and borrowing money began, which was to become basically my life for the next nine years. Despite that, Claire, thankfully, you managed to graduate, despite your gambling addiction sort of taking control of your life. So can you tell me about the Claire post-graduation then? Yeah, I was 26 at that point. So my gambling addiction had definitely taken a huge toll. I was really at a loss to find pleasure in anything. There's an Irish poet called Patrick Havner. <laughs> and I remember his poetry really clearly from school because I found it really beautiful. But he wrote this poem called Advent. And there's this line in it where he talks about the newness that was in every stale thing when we looked at it as children. And that line really resonates with me because throughout my addiction, I never felt that feeling. I couldn't find the joy in anything because all I ever felt was fear and dread towards everything. One thing you said to me off air, Claire, was that during this period, when you'd go out for a drink with friends, you weren't really going there for a drink. You just use it as a tool to find an escape to the bookie somewhere and then sneak out. Did that start to affect your friendships as well? So if they knew you were using them as a smokescreen for the gambling, for example, or did they recognise those red flags and try and help you? Yeah, well, it definitely affected my friendships. A lot of the time if my friends rang me and they wanted to do something with me, I'd either make up an excuse not to go or else probably more often if they wanted us to go for a drink that night, I would agree. And then I'd go in a few hours earlier than I'd arranged with them and I'd spend that time gambling. I pretty much resented when they'd arrive because it meant I couldn't keep gambling. And when I was with them, I was never present. I was always broke. And in reality, all I would be thinking about was how do I get more money to gamble or when can I get away to gamble? So eventually they became disinterested in me. And, you know, I can't blame them for that because I showed absolutely no interest in them. You talked there about a lack of direction or, or purposelessness. At the time, you were also working what you called pretty dead-end jobs at the time, Claire. So did that also negatively 
impact your mental health or add to this feeling of purposelessness or lack of direction in your life? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's that vicious circle, isn't it? Really, like from the age of 13, I worked in jobs I didn't care about or in industries that I had no interest in. And I know a part of me always thought, well, this is just for now. This is temporary. But then I got into my 20s and I realized I was still working these jobs. But of course, because my addiction had taken over at that point, I wasn't really in a position to leave those jobs, which definitely impacted my mental health in a negative way. I felt useless, to be honest. It was like I'd failed myself, which led to anxiety. And then that, in turn, just fueled the addiction. The dawn of technological advancements in gambling definitely affected you, Claire. And at this point, you started diversifying the ways that you gambled. So, for example, you started playing online poker tournaments. Would you say that this technology kick or technology progress in the way that gambling was done was the most dangerous point for your addiction? Yeah, well, so I played poker tournaments online and in my local pub. To be honest, I really did love just sitting down to play a tournament, but the problem was the cash game afterwards. So tournaments have an entry fee and everyone's on the same playing field and you only pay the once. But with the cash games, it's like David and Goliath. And for someone like me with very little money and a gambling addiction, it's really impossible to maintain any level of control because even when I had a big win, I couldn't walk away with it until, you know, either it was all gone or the game was finished, whichever came first. But the desperation that you feel to have a bet is what leads to the online gambling. So when you start playing like fixed odds games, that's really when the trouble starts. I was addicted to roulette and I think there's a spin every 20 seconds or something like that. And you start to believe you have a system and that you can beat the house, which is completely irrational belief, of course. But as I said earlier, this voice in your head just keeps that going. But as regards the technological advancements, it's it's so dangerous, but it's so well done from their point of view. You described the online gambling to me off air, Claire, that you were doing as a death sentence. Can you explain what you meant by that? <laughs> Thinking about it now, I'd say it's it's probably worse than that. It's more like a Sisyphean existence. You keep doing the same thing every day and at the end of that day, you've achieved nothing or what is essentially less than nothing because all you're really achieving is creating more debt. At this point, you can't even pretend that you're getting any joy out of it because you're not, but you believe that if you don't continue to do it, then there's no hope to fix all the damage you've done. This is the only addiction where a person believes they can solve their problems by continuing to do the thing that caused the problems to begin with. At this point, the gambling had completely taken over your life, Claire, and you were hiding almost all of the debts you owed, and in your words, lying became your life. Can you tell me and the listeners about the saying your mother told you, which you said summed up your life at this point, and then how the addiction began to affect your physical health as well as your mental health? 
my amazing mother. <laughs> she always had these little sayings when I was growing up. And when you grow up listening to them, they tend to stick. But during my addiction, one of those became really relevant, which was, oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. Now, obviously, that's a Walter Scott quote, so she can't take credit for it. But <laughs> the message is very relatable. When you're gambling, all you can think about is getting that next bet on. And you will lie to get money. And you will lie about paying your bills when you haven't. And you lie about where you are so that no one can question your gambling habits. And then the biggest problem with that is the toll it takes in your mind because then you have to keep track of your lies in order to continue facilitating the gambling. So obviously, you know, that leads to stress. And for me, that excessive stress, I ended up in A&E because of it, because I was experiencing dizziness and weakness and memory loss and a whole host of other things. So I really wasn't in a good way at all. You were also then admitted to hospital. So how did that feel being admitted, first of all? And then how did it also feel being admitted for something which stereotypically might not always be thought of purely as a mental health condition? You know, I, I don't think they even think about that as, as an issue when someone arrives into them. Like, I was still at a stage of not being able to fully admit my addiction. So I was mainly just scared of what was actually physically happening to me. And I was in there for a week before they kind of realized what was actually wrong with me because I do have a physical disease as well. So they had to do all the tests. And if I'm honest about it, I was really hoping that it was that that was the problem, you know. A big turning point in your journey, Claire, and what led to you recovering from it was a phone call you had with a man you knew who had gone through a similar experience to yourself. Can you tell me about that conversation and how that helped you? Was it the spark for you to admit you had a problem yourself? I actually made that call while I was still in hospital that time. I called a person who had written a book on his own experience of gambling and who is now an addiction counsellor. It was really the call of a desperate, broken woman looking to be understood and needing to feel a connection. And I did get that. He was so good and he made me feel I wasn't alone. I started counseling sessions with him a few weeks after that and he really did help me every step of the way. And I think that was because I trusted that this man had experienced everything I had. And that inspired hope for me that I could overcome this the same way he had. You had actually tried other forms of treatment before you contacted this man to help you, Claire. Gamblers Anonymous was the main form, but you didn't find it too helpful. Why was that? Well, firstly, I'll say that Gamblers Anonymous is a fantastic organisation. And for those who find it works for them, it's really powerful and there's a great mm. sense of community there. I suppose it comes down to an each to their own approach. For me personally, I couldn't relate. I 
think it's the religious overtones and the fact that there's a lot of blame put on the individual, which I felt really just didn't inspire me to change. You also did counselling after this. How did the counselling change the way you thought about yourself? Did it help you develop any positive tools to help you? And how did it alter your perception to gambling as well? I had gone to counselling on several occasions before, but because this time I was doing it with a peer, it was very, it was a very different experience. There was nothing that I said or nothing that I'd done during my addiction that he didn't understand because he'd been there as well. And I feel like that really is what made the difference. The fact that, you know, he was a counsellor was really secondary in my mind. I just felt that I'd finally found a friend to talk to. So he advised me to put a blocking software on my phone, which is called Gamban. And it took me a little while to get there, you know, to commit to that. But from the day that I did that, I haven't gambled. And as of today, I'm 520 days gamble free. (laughs) Amazing. I want to move on now and talk about the narrative of gambling between the sexes, if we can, because many people, probably including myself at one point, thought that gambling is largely or purely a male problem, but it's not, is it, as we've discussed here. Can you tell me about the different stigmas that female gambling addicts or problem gamblers like yourself have faced and break down some of those myths? I suppose one of the myths I'd consider in relation to female gamblers is that they only gamble online, you know, or that it's just slots and bingo. There's no doubt that these games are definitely targeted towards women, but for me, I was never really into them. I mean, I spent a lot of my addiction in the bookies betting on dogs and horses. And funnily enough, I never saw myself as out of place, but I'm sure the people in there definitely thought I looked (laughs) strange. And one thing that always bugged me was men would come up to me trying to chat to me or give me tips, which absolutely wrecked my head. And I found it really patronizing. But there is no doubt that women are seen and treated differently. But I'd also like to say that we're really not that different, you know, and the gender narrative, it's relevant and it's important. But, you know, we all experience the same pain, really. And and it is pain. Do you think one of the reasons why people naively or ignorantly think that gambling is purely a male problem is because of the relationship between a sport like football and gambling which is so popular and the relationship is so intertwined and the majority of football audiences are young middle-aged men that female stories can be forgotten or even at worst ignored I don't think that's the case I think the reason that you hear so few stories about women gambling is because of the stigma and shame that women feel about their gambling and that's down to societal pressure you know, to adhere to female norms, which don't include gambling. The relationship between football and gambling is shocking and it's so tactically marketed. You see all these ads, you know, for different operators where they show a group of friends betting and everyone looks like they're having a great time. But what that does is create a normalization that then shames the people who are not in control of their gambling. So 
it puts the blame on you, the punter. And then they, they brazenly add this token responsible gambling message mm-hmm. at the end of it, which just reinforces the narrative that, you know, you are the problem and that it's got nothing to do with their highly addictive products, which is evil, really, if you think about it. Like, it's a very evil and calculated industry, and that's why they're so profitable. Is that a very subtle form of gaslighting, then, do you think? (laughs) I'd say that's probably a very appropriate term, yeah. You went to your GP about your addiction, Claire, and you were then given antidepressants as a sort of blanket treatment. Now, I've heard this story from countless people, and Obviously, there's a lot of education that the medical industry needs to do when it comes to treating people and not just giving people leaflets. And I could go on phrases about that. But do you think what you went through with your GP, and I'm not obviously putting the blame on the GP themselves, but do you think this is part of the problem when it comes to understanding gambling addiction? Yeah, of course. I think it's really difficult for people to admit that something's wrong and then to look for help and you know the first stop for a lot of people is going to be their GP but unfortunately a lot of the time the GPs are clueless about gambling addiction anyway and that's because they simply haven't been given the information to deal with it in my opinion depression and gambling addiction go hand in hand but antidepressants are not the answer because the depression is like a side effect of the gambling so it's it's not going to help I never took those antidepressants and I'm really glad because I don't know what road that would have led me down or where I'd be now. One thing I found very surprising when we spoke off air, Claire, is that you told me there's no gambling regulator in Ireland. So how does that lack of regulation affect A, the environment for addicts in the country and B, the practices which are allowed to go on there seemingly without someone overseeing them and to say this is probably not right. Basically, it means that there's little to no protection for people. In the UK, the Gambling Commission is there to regulate the operators, both online and land-based. They issue licenses, they set the standards for those licenses, and there's supposedly, anyway, some level of accountability. There's also a levy, you know, to be paid by the operators that goes into education and prevention and treatment. Now saying that the UK gambling regulator is quite flawed, but it's still miles ahead of the Irish one Mm. because we don't have one. Barriers when you're looking for help in Ireland lie in the fact that there are very few treatment options available and there's no multi-operator exclusion scheme for people, which they do have in the UK. So it's quite dire to be honest, but supposedly we're going to have a regulator in place in early 2023 but that really is a wait and see predicament yeah you feel like the horse has bolted a little bit there but at least the at least they're trying to get the horse back in the stable I mean I guess you can put it (laughs) yeah we'll see (laughs) (laughs) I want to move on from gambling now because you also live with a rare endocrine disease Claire which I guess must add so many other layers of complexities and challenges to your life can you tell the listeners how it affects your day-to-day life and your mental health I have a disease called multiple endocrine neoplasia type 1 basically it means that I get tumors in all my endocrine glands but they can appear in other areas as well so 
I have a tumor in my pituitary gland. I have tumors on my parathyroid glands and my pancreas is covered in, in them. In general, they tend to be benign. But in 2015, you know, some of the ones on my pancreas, they were growing. So the surgeons decided to just take that portion of the pancreas out and and just get rid of the big ones, really. So I had that surgery, which was quite a big surgery. I was in hospital for two weeks and then the recovery took months at home and I was really unprepared for that. I didn't have a clue. And then... Yes, I've I've an 11 inch scar across my abdomen to remind me of that one, which is fun. And then in August this year, I had a tumor removed from my lung, which turned out to be cancerous. So they took out the tumor and they took out the lobe around that and they took out a lymph node that it had spread to. And (laughs) they basically said, we think we've got it all. So all I can do now is wait until my next CT scan, which is in March, and hopefully, hopefully getting all clear properly, you know. But in general, it doesn't tend to interfere with my day-to-day life, but it is always there in the background. You know, it definitely adds a layer of stress, but I try not to think about it. To treat this endocrine disease, you were put on the same medication to treat it as the one used to treat Parkinson's, which is a degenerative brain disease. I believe it's called dopamine agonist. Can you tell me about the link you found between compulsive gambling and this medication and the evidence behind that? Yes, yeah, so the medication is called cabergolin and it's a dopamine agonist. And there's actually, I suppose nowadays, plenty of evidence that can corroborate this, including the leaflet that comes with the medication. And I believe Pfizer only added that information to the leaflet in 2008, which was the same time that I started taking it. I don't know whether it was before or afterwards. And there's been tons of cases of people who've never gambled in their lives suddenly becoming compulsive gamblers after being put on this medication, which has led to a lot of lawsuits. If I were to be asked, do I think this is what led to my addiction? I think the truth is I'll never know the answer to that. But I think when you combine that with highly addictive products, you just got a recipe for disaster. Before we wrap up this topic, Claire, I want to quickly talk about motherhood because you've got two sons and you became a mother comparatively early in, I guess, today's generation standards. What has that been like for you? How has it been beneficial for your mental health and maybe some of the challenges? Well, I don't know if 28 is early, but maybe it is these days. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it probably is now. (laughs) Um, I have two beautiful sons who are four and two, and they are so amazing. But it definitely was very difficult to adjust to motherhood. Like people always tell you before you have kids that you'll have no time for yourself to do anything when you become a parent. And to be fair, it's true. <laughs> you know, when you're so used to only having yourself to look after and then suddenly there's two human beings who are completely dependent on you, it's definitely a shock to the system and it's a difficult transition to make. But in saying that, you know, as tough as it is sometimes, my boys are my absolute world and I, I love them <laughs> so much. Like it's 
it's just like this love that can never be matched by anything else but that I couldn't have imagined before this yeah and they're just they're my inspiration and my motivation for everything let's reflect on your journey now Claire so you're 32 now which I hope you don't mind me disclosing on a podcast and gambling had previously had a hold in your life for nine years first of all do you feel like you lost those years to gambling addiction or do you see it as part of your journey to get to where you are today those nine years have a dark cloud over them and I don't look back on them fondly which it kind of hurts to say because a lot of good things did happen during that time including having my my sons but you know unfortunately I spent that entire time in a zombie-like state I was never present I was never really there so all of those good things that happened I didn't get the full experience is how I feel now anyway what I can say now is that having gone through this experience I do have a much greater awareness of life and the realities of life and of a great greater appreciation for you know what's important and I think the most positive thing I can probably take from it is the lived experience because you know that enables me to help others who are going through the same thing and as a final question before we move on if you could go back and talk to that 20 year old Claire who was escaping out of pubs with mates to go into the bookies or crippled with insomnia because of the desire to gamble late at night what would you say to her knowing what you do now I was always a very impatient person and if I wanted something I felt I had to have it straight away. I'd love to tell that person to just slow down and figure out what she really wants because I tell her to really focus and commit to what's important but you know also be grateful for what she has. Before we move on to the mental health chat, Claire, I just want to quickly talk about your recovering coaching. So thankfully, you've now come out of this huge period of addiction and you've turned it into a really, really big positive, Claire. So can you tell me why you wanted to do it and what you wanted to achieve with it? Yeah, so the coaching is still a work in progress. So it's more of a side project at the moment, but I really love it. And I've seen it transform people's you know, entire view of the world. I believe that it's a very important step in the recovery process. When I got into recovery, like obviously the peer support and the counselling were hugely important, but when that finished, I had to find a way to sustain my recovery. So I started looking at my diet, changing my diet and, you know, really looking into nutrition. And I also, for the first time in my life, actually started working out, which really helped my positivity levels. And then shortly after that, I discovered the coaching and I started my diploma in coaching with neuroscience in February. And that took seven months. I just found it mind blowing. (laughs) Yeah, it taught me how to really believe in myself and to question my negative beliefs, which was massive. You know, it, it just added this whole new level to my recovery and it gave me the confidence to pursue my goals. And that's really why I wanted to start it because I feel like I am the proof of what it can do. And I think that's 
important you know for others to be able to experience that too and especially when you're coming out of a gambling addiction you have no confidence you have nothing but self-loathing realistically and you need to you know get into the right headspace and coaching is fantastic for that and I think that you know what I hope to achieve is the fact that you know if I can help people it's through the coaching and the fact that I've been there you know and I think that's a a really helpful element to it do you think it's changed your life absolutely yeah I'd say so I think that (laughs) I think that Irish people in general can be very negative and we we just see you know if someone asks us how we are we'll always have a negative response (laughs) so do English people to be fair because that's that's a universal (laughs) thing I think on on these on these aisles but it that's the thing it's ingrained in us isn't it and we tend to go to the negative first and being able to not do that has just been a, a game changer in itself so it's just you know changing behaviors and, and retraining your brain but um I don't think I would have achieved any of what I've achieved now if I hadn't done it Our final topic of conversation, Claire, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So firstly, how would you say your mental health is at the moment? It's really good. I'm in a good and positive and optimistic place. And I think for the first time in my life, I'm actually, you know, excited for the future. Amazing. Can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health? So who was it with? How did it go? And did you feel like a part of you had changed or a big burden or weight had been lifted off your shoulders? Or on the other end of the spectrum, did it feel like something quite normal and insignificant to do? I mean, would I say that I can tell you exactly who it was? No, but can I tell you that it was really a counsellor because I never would have found it easy to talk to people around me. You know, sometimes you just really need that safe space, I think. And it's very difficult to open up and admit that you're struggling. And for a long time, I just bottled it all up and tried to hide it. But I think what's important is that you're having that chat with the right person. But I would definitely say that talking to someone just lifts a weight off your shoulders and it helps you feel like you're not alone, which is you know, so important. What triggers do you have that affect your mental health? So it could be a sound, it could be a sensation, it could be a social environment, it could be a book, a website, anything you want, or have you not figured all of them out yet? I think any negative or disappointing experience you have is always going to test you. And money issues, of course, like are difficult. But, you know, now I have an awareness of these things. And instead of panicking I try to think logically and rationally and then usually I am able to manage. And then what tools and methods do you use to improve your mental health? You said exercise already but are there any others and what ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't as well? I don't think I'd say that there's anything that hasn't worked. I think you know (laughs) well I think if you put in the time and commitment most things will work that could be difficult though like yeah exercise and nutrition have been very important for me but consistency is the hardest part of that slowing down and you know appreciating the gifts that you have is also very beneficial 
But I would say at the start of my recovery, I really adopted this, you know, one day at a time approach. So after day one, I was eager to get to day two and then three and then it was week one and week two and so on. And, you know, they might not sound like big milestones to people, but for me at the time, they really were. And it didn't take long to get to a point of feeling like, wow, you know, I've come so far and there's no way I'm going backwards. And I would still feel that way now. And it drives me and it keeps me going. And as a final question, Claire, this is a a broad one, so you can answer it however you want. What more do you think we have to do to ensure people from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable, feel safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? Well, really, it's in what you're doing now, isn't it? It's in having people from all backgrounds talk about their experiences. But that's not an easy thing to do. Like, I mean, have you ever heard that saying you're standing on the shoulders of giants? And I have indeed. Yeah, like... I think about that with regards to the people in the space I'm in. So people who've come out and talked about their gambling addictions. And I feel like I am standing on their shoulders because if they hadn't done that, would I have the confidence to do what I'm doing now? Probably not. So it is in what you're doing now. It's in getting people talking, but it's also... I found that just reaching out is so important because like there could be someone that you come across on social media or someone telling their story and you know if you actually just send them a little message you'd be surprised that they're they will get back to you and maybe they won't but I have found I would say 99% of people get back to me even though I'm just a random stranger (laughs) because you know we are inherently good and especially when you're struggling I think people do want to help so I think it's just you know reaching out and listening really isn't it Claire Donegan thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking podcast well that's all we've got time for in this episode of the Just Checking podcast I want to say a big thanks to Claire for talking about her journey and the stigmas of being a female gambler I'll put some links to where you can follow Claire on social media in the show notes if you would like to access her resources and support. As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. I'll sign us off by saying, if you like what you've heard, give it a share on social media, tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it, spread the good news about Vents and the podcast. If you want to help us even further, you can write us a review or give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That will help us out with all of those precious algorithms. If you want to do more, you can support us at Patreon, which is www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. That will really, really help us out. If you don't want to do that and you just want to make a one-off donation, you can do so via our GoFundMe. That is on our link tree and across all of our channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it is always... Mm-hmm.